0: good evening I want to thank you all for the opportunity for giving me an opportunity to speak again for you tonight I want to talk about Jesus and the Samaritan woman of course this is part of our uh, broader study of encounters with Christ there's these different times where people have a, a dialogue with Jesus and, you know we're, we're of course all here because we're interested in in God and in knowing more about Christ, and you know, I have questions. I would, uh, I would like to speak with Jesus, and perhaps you feel the same way. And so, uh, of course, we can speak to Jesus through prayer and 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 by uh, studying. You know, we can have that dialogue with God that way, uh, and that's of course why we're here assembled with the prayers and the Bible studies that we do here. We might not meet Jesus in person in our travels here on earth, but we can read about those who did, and that's the idea of this this series. Last time we talked about Nicodemus and how he had an encounter with Christ, and he was kind of a big shot as far as uh, his role in, in the Jewish culture there. He was said to be the teacher of Israel, but he didn't get it. He didn't really understand What Jesus was saying in his encounter. But this time we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with a lowly Samaritan woman. And against our expectations, we will see that she does get it. And if we think briefly to compare and contrast, not to completely re-preach the lesson about Nicodemus, but just to highlight some differences we'll see and some similarities between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. So, Nicodemus came by night, that was emphasized in that account, and I suggested that that might uh, give us an idea of his uh, mindset towards Jesus, perhaps as a negative, dark mindset. Whereas here, the Samaritan woman, this encounter happens in the middle of the day. Nicodemus was outwardly righteous, he was an upstanding man, a teacher of Israel, and uh, this woman seems to have moral issues going on. And while he was the teacher of Israel, she seemed to be outcast from her community. They both initially misunderstand Jesus, because Jesus says some difficult things sometimes that we all struggle to, to grow and learn about. But we see with Nicodemus in his story that he didn't commit to Jesus, at least in that first encounter. Whereas with the Samaritan woman, we'll see that she's able to spread the word to the village. So I invite you to get your Bibles, if you haven't already guessed where we are. It's John chapter 4, and uh, similar to last time, this is going to be an expository lesson where we're going to be looking at this pericope, this story of Jesus and the woman of Samaria in, in John 4 uh, through verse 42, thereabouts, and what we're going to be going through this And looking closer at it. So verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he was leaving this situation, and he'd been in in Jerusalem, and he's having to go up to Galilee up north, but in between lies Samaria. And so we probably all heard that some uh, very strict Jews would not travel through Samaria because of the way that the Samaritans were seen and viewed. And so they would travel way off to the to the east uh, through the, the Jordan River area or way off to the west over toward the Mediterranean Sea just to avoid Samaria in order to go up farther north. But that's not what everyone did. There was just some, you know, like people like the Pharisees who were very strict on these things, uh, maybe even above and beyond what they ought to be doing. Uh, but Jesus wasn't going to make a big deal about avoiding the Samaritans in this journey. In fact, that's. The whole purpose of his travel, or part of the purpose of his travel, was to meet with them. And just to do a a quick little geography lesson, I thought I found this interesting. So on the left we have a map of Ohio. Hopefully you can see the rough outline, the Ohio River and Lake Erie up there. And on the right we have the land of Israel. You can see the Sea of Galilee up north and the Dead Sea down to the south. Familiar from different maps in our Bibles and whatnot. but, But these are to the same scale. And I thought that was interesting. I always had the idea that the land of Israel was was so enormous. Um, But when you compare it to Ohio, it's similar in the distance from north to south uh, there. But, of course, everything takes longer when you're walking. So we think about these Bible lands and Bible stories. uh, It might seem short by car, but they weren't driving in cars. So thinking about this journey that Jesus was taking from Jerusalem... Up to this point, in uh, where he meets with the Samaritans, it would take about a two days walk from Jerusalem to Sychar, where this is going to be set. And so, if we were to think in our terms, that would be similar to a distance traveling from from Worcester to Medina. If we were kind of to go over to the interstate and up and around, um, it's not the shortest distance, but it's actually the shortest time. So, about 35 miles, something like that. Of course, that doesn't take us two days to go to Medina, but, you know, the folks at this time walking, something in the, the order of 20 miles per day is what they would expect. So looking at verse 5 here, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so this well is actually still there today. I have not had the opportunity to go there, but I found some photographs. And it's actually inside of a, a Greek Orthodox church facility that's there on the site today. And it is very deep. It is uh, 100 feet or maybe a little over 100 feet deep. And so trying to imagine, I think that the depth of this building back to the classrooms is probably... Not even 100 feet. Uh, Or if you think about in terms of a a building, nine stories, a a little over nine stories would be about 100 feet. So this is an enormously deep well. So they're on this journey. Jesus is tired from this long walk. And there's that reference to the sixth hour of the day. So the way they reckoned time was kind of sunrise, so 6 a.m.-ish to six hours later would be noon, if you think about it that way. So roughly the middle of the day, the heat of the day. And so we recall, again, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, that this encounter will occur in the bright sun of the day. So let's meet the Samaritan woman in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So our first red flag is that this woman is coming to the well in the middle of the day here at noon or at six hour, however we want to say it. The cultural norm was for uh, women to come and fetch water in the morning when it was cool or, or at dusk when it was cool. And it was kind of a social uh, occasion. Even, even today in an office environment, we might talk about meeting at the water cooler and just kind of visiting there. But for these women having that role. Uh, It was a time for them to get out and and visit. But we see that this woman is uh, avoiding that by coming at this time of the day. She's coming alone, not in the morning and not at dusk, but at, at noon. And so we also see that Jesus is breaking some social norms here because in that culture, It was thought to be inappropriate for a man to speak with a woman that he doesn't know. And then much less for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan. So all of these social pressures are kind of uh, coming to a head here in this sort of this drama, we might say, that we're reading about in John's account of the gospel. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans had been at odds for centuries. And really it it began, we can read in the Old Testament accounts of where uh, after after we, of course, have had Saul and David and Solomon and then the generations after that, the the kingdom split. We have Israel splitting from, from Judah in the days of Rehoboam, and Jeroboam and that new rogue kingdom of Israel set up two golden calves to worship in Dan and Bethel up north there. And he claimed that those were the gods that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then, of course, as we think further along in history there, the the, the captivity, and they were taken away to Assyria. And so just a few of the Jewish people were left there, but then the Assyrians sent in foreigners to mix with those people, and so uh, they were, these people left, the Samaritans, as they came to be called, they were considered by the the Judeans, the Jews down south, as half-bred, idolatrous traitors, and maybe scum, any kind of a negative word, some of the, maybe some of the race relations, particularly in in, uh, generations past, maybe a, a way to think about the animosity that these folks had with each other. Looking at verse 10 it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is where the word play comes in. This idea of living water. Living water was not really a novel phrase that Jesus invented here in this discussion. Living water was the term used to describe flowing water, like water from a river or a, or like a artesian spring where it's flowing out up top and that you could just collect that right from the flow of it. And so, that was called for in the Old Testament laws for uh, ritual cleansing, You're used to use living water in those occasions. Uh, and, of course, dead water would refer to stagnant water. So there's this physical sense in which this word can be taken. But there in that physical location at Sychar, there was no living water in the physical sense. There was no rivers, really, there. And no, there was, of course, the spring that fed this well that they're at. But no you know, springs bubbling right up for you. So there was no living water in that physical sense of that phrase. But of course, Jesus is driving at a much more profound meaning when he says living water. He's not just talking about physical running water. He is talking about the spiritual renewal from God through the Holy Spirit. But as this dialogue continues, the woman is not hearing Jesus's words with spiritual ears. Let's make sure we tune our ears and eyes and our hearts to hear the word of God the way it's intended. Because a lot of times the things that we read in the in the word of God are, are not straightforward. We have to, to understand the spiritual meaning of these things. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she thinks Jesus is talking about physical, running, flowing water. No, that is not what Jesus is talking about. And the question she asked is, is Jesus greater than Jacob? You better believe it. He is the son of God. He is the prophet, the priest, the king that everyone's waiting for. He is the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed, and he is God himself, deity. But as we continue in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus here begins to signal to the woman, that he's not talking about regular physical water. This isn't to quench our physical thirst. This is the spiritual refreshment that becomes a blessing for ourselves and our spiritual renewal and for others as we share our faith. Jesus is offering everlasting life. And he's essentially giving the same sermon that he gave earlier to Nicodemus about the new birth, except instead of this new birth idea he talked about there, he's talking about this idea of living water. The Samaritan woman must be born again with the living water, referring to the idea of baptism and spiritual renewal, renewal the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now. For us, after Jesus has died, was buried, was risen from the dead, we must be born again. And so the question goes to you. If you have not named Christ, if you have not obeyed the gospel, will you receive this free gift? Let us continue to the next verse here, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this woman, bless her heart, is still understandably confused. He doesn't; un- She doesn't understand the nature of what Jesus is saying. She sees the offer as a physical convenience. You know, and think about it. What a pain it must be to transport water every day. That still happens in some countries and maybe even some parts of this country. But, you know, I think we're all blessed to, to have clean, fresh water and indoor plumbing and those things. We just take that for granted. But that's not what they had. And don't forget, too, that this lady is up to something. There's there's some reason that she's avoiding the other ladies from the village. You know, by as evidenced by the time of day she's coming to the well. To be able to avoid this whole water scene altogether is maybe even more attractive to her because she's trying to avoid some of that social interaction that, that makes her feel some, some sort of shame. But what is her deal. What's going on with her? Jesus is about to get to the heart of the matter in verse 16. Jesus said to her, seemingly changing the subject, "Go call your husband and come here." The woman answered, answered him, "I have no husband." Jesus said to her, "You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had 5 husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband." What you have said is true. So out of nowhere, from her perspective, this random stranger, this foreign Jewish man, Jesus suddenly reveals that he knows what her deal is. He sees right through her. As we introduced uh, the the scene here, uh, back with Nicodemus, we can be reminded of again here. Back in John chapter 2, verse 24, it it said there that he did not need anyone to testify about mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind. Of course, that was the preface to Nicodemus and how we could understand that Jesus knew what, what Nicodemus was thinking. And similarly here, Jesus knows everything that's going on with this woman. But what is Jesus really saying about her here? In these verses, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So I've always heard that this woman was you know, what we might call a home wrecker. You know, a, a woman who cuts in on someone's marriage, and then gets that marriage to break up, and then she marries that man that she was cheating with, and and that sort of thing, and uh, and then maybe once she's married to that man, then she's going to continue her cheating ways, and she goes out cheating with other men and leaving kind of a a, a trail of destruction, a wake of, of of a mess here, and then and then the idea is that perhaps she's jacking up with this man that's referred to that she has now, and she's not married to him. But is that what Jesus actually says here? She had five husbands, is what it says. Now, women in that day weren't typically able to divorce their husbands, as far as initiating the divorce. So if there were divorces, if that's what this is trying to tell us, they were not at her initiation. But does Jesus even say... Anything about a divorce here, or is that just the way we've kind of have read it or heard it? To, to be faithful to the text, I think we need to think about about what is actually said here. You know, think about Tamar. She had been widowed twice, and then Sheila was withheld. the The, uh, the third son, Sheila, was withheld from her. So that's not without precedent that there could be. Multiple widowing situations going on. So maybe, maybe this woman had been a widow these times. Or, or maybe these men did divorce her, but perhaps they did it for unjust causes. Perhaps this is a woman who has been so disrespected by men that she has lost all respect for herself. Maybe the townspeople look at her with scorn, or maybe she just sees herself as a worthless failure. And who is this man she now has who is not her husband? Are we sure that it's not just someone that's charitably taken her in? Or is she with someone because it's uh, the only way a woman in her situation can survive? You know, think about Esther. Esther was living not with her mom and dad, but with her relative Mordecai, because she had nowhere else to go in that situation in captivity. Now I'm not saying that this woman was was free from sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm not even arguing that that she wasn't with a man in a sinful way, perhaps as we've heard. I'm just saying Jesus doesn't provide all those details here in the text, and He doesn't even tell her to go and sin no more in this in this context. So it's some things to think about. Or maybe we're maybe we're too hard on her. But let's read on in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So as Jesus is revealing all that he knows about her, she begins to recognize that Jesus is special. Perhaps he is greater than Jacob, who had dug this well. Of course he is. And perhaps to deflect from the shame of her personal situation, and perhaps out of honest curiosity, she asks Jesus about one of the main theological differences between Samaritans and Jews. Where should we worship? Where should the temple be to honor God and connect with God? So, One thing to realize about the Samaritans was that they didn't believe in the entire canon of Scripture that the Jews did. So what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. The Samaritan Bible only had the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that was it. All the other things that we think about as the Old Testament, they did not consider that Scripture. And these five books that they had were altered and corrupted to a certain extent to portray Mount Gerizim, which is near where they are, they are in this story in Samaria, that that's where the temple had been established in, in the Bible. Whereas, of course, it's in Jerusalem and Mount Zion. So she's asking, you know, so which is it, prophet? Jerusalem, Mount Zion, or Mount Gerizim? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You know, the straightforward answer to her question would be, Jerusalem is where you're supposed to be worshiping at this point in time in history as a Jewish person, uh, the Samaritans are wrong, and they have corrupted the scriptures. Well, that's not how he starts his response. He's, he's so much wiser than that. Jesus came to earth to change everything, to fulfill all the prophecies, to usher in the new covenant. And we're moving past all this worshiping in the temple and Jerusalem business here with the New Testament. And, you know, thinking forward ahead with that, Spoiler alert, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your, plural, you all, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You know, Peter talks about how we're being built as living stones into the temple of God. But the Samaritans are, in fact, wrong. God's plan of salvation is through the Jews. You know, through the Jews is the the, the line that Jesus comes through. Jesus is a Jew, and it's through all that lineage we read through the Old Testament that all these prophecies are fulfilled. Look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The hour is coming. It's now here. What? God is seeking? Have you thought about that? He is seeking for worshipers. He is seeking for you. He is seeking for me. And for our neighbors, how can we help facilitate that? God is not a carved idol in some stone building somewhere. He is spirit. And we need to be spiritually minded, walking in the spirit to worship him properly. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And all I can think is, lady, you don't know who you're talking to. But you're about to find out. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he? I am the Christ, in other words, he's saying. And so, of course, she would be pleased and excited. Everyone's looking for the Christ. Jesus just declared himself to be the Messiah, the Christ. And who did he first reveal this great truth to? To this humble Samaritan woman, one of the outcasts of the Jews, a woman who didn't fit within her community for all of the issues we can speculate about with her five husbands and the man she has. Does he care for you and me? I think so. You know, we might think uh, another way to translate this verse more literally. Jesus said to her, I am, and then the he's in italics because that's not there. I am the one speaking to you. And so this would make someone familiar with the Old Testament. And even a Samaritan who only believes in the first five books, Exodus 315, 3.14 God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And there are a number of statements that echo this in in John's gospel on the lips of Jesus. And uh, by some counts, we talk about the seven I am statements in John. You know, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, etc. through there. But there are actually 23 times that Jesus says, I am this or that. And this is one of those. John's gospel is saturated with allusions to and evidences of of Jesus' divinity. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. So he had been getting food, right? They came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And I get the sense here that the disciples missed this very important thing Jesus had said. Uh, you know, maybe they heard that last piece. I, I am the one speaking to you. That doesn't, <laughs> If you only heard that, you wouldn't really understand the significance of what he was saying. But without... Uh, because they wouldn't have heard the part that the woman said about how the Christ is coming. And then him saying, I am, I am he. What they did notice was that Jesus was breaking the cultural norms. He was speaking with a woman that he did not know. And not only just some woman, but a Samaritan woman and all of the, the baggage that comes with that. But they've learned by this point to not be too surprised when Jesus does unusual things. But what does the woman do? She doesn't stand around there. She's just heard the best news of her life. Through generations, they've been looking for the Messiah. The promised Messiah has come. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out. Of the town, and we're coming to him. So she's excited. She's sharing the good news. You know, we might be a little uncomfortable at this. You know, Paul has some things to say in his writings, like 1 Timothy 2:12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over, to, over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then in 1 Corinthians 14:34, uh, the woman should the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And, and Paul is right. There is a standard for for how husbands and wives ought to relate to one another, and there is a way that things ought to be conducted in church decently and in order. But it's also true that every one of us, men and women, boys and girls, each of us has a unique sphere of influence. How will the church grow if we don't share the good news? Isn't that the Great Commission? If we just leave it to the preacher or or to the elders or or just to the men, the church will be stunted in its growth. So as an action item for you, share the good news of Jesus Christ with enthusiasm among those you know. Our next verse, verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Because they had just gone shopping for him, right? But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So here we go again with the wordplay, right? Jesus is speaking spiritually while his hearers are understanding physically. Get your spiritual ears on, brothers and sisters. We make sure we understand this. Jesus is excited, too. This woman is excited, and she's sharing the good news. But Jesus is excited because he turned this woman's heart toward God. He set her spiritually on fire, and good things are happening. He doesn't care about food in this moment, and perhaps we can think of times in our life where, where we can identify with that. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Instead of physical food, he is sustained in this moment by the joy of accomplishing the will of the heavenly father. And moving on to verse 35, we start to think about this idea of uh, some agricultural connections, uh, parables of sorts. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In verse 30, we were told that the Samaritans were on their way to come to Jesus because of the testimony of the woman. Perhaps at this moment, these people were arriving then there where Jesus was. And maybe they were wearing light colored clothing. <laughs> and see, the fields are white for harvest. There's these people. You know, in Matthew 4, verse 19, uh, Jesus said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So instead of a fishing metaphor here, Jesus is using a harvest illustration of harvesting crops. These people are ready to receive the word of God, they are primed and ready and interested. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that uh, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true: one sows and another reaps I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered into their labor so unlike physical farming where you, you plant those seeds and wait for a number of months. Sometimes sharing the gospel leads to an immediate harvest. There could have been other work someone else did in planting those seeds earlier, and you're just there and just in time for things to be to be ready. No, that's not always true. Thinking back again to Nicodemus, he didn't figure it out right away. Perhaps over time, as we read through the rest of the gospel of John, he seemed to grow in his interest and faith. But what's happening here is just an immediate uh, harvest. Verse 39 Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Her testimony was, He told me all that I ever did. Now, didn't we have the impression that nobody in the village liked this woman? They looked down on her or whatever? She came to the well at noon to avoid people because of her shameful failed marriages and whatever the circumstances of those were? Could it be that she built these obstacles up in her own mind? Did we ever do that? We think people don't like us or we're not good enough or something. Well, my house isn't nice enough to be hospitable. I'm not a Bible expert, so I can't teach anyone about the Bible. I've sinned too much, and God cannot forgive me, so I will not obey the gospel. And that's, that's the devil talking those kind of things in our head. That's not how it is. This lady didn't let her doubts stop her from sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. But what about me? What about you? Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. So we have success with the Samaritans. In verse 42, they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So while the woman at the well was an important starter in these people's faith, These people made their faith their own as they came to know Jesus for themselves. And isn't that part of our journey? Maybe we have a a parent or a friend or a loved one who got us interested in the gospel. But we need to grow from that initial spark and and make our faith our own. And I skipped something here at the beginning of the story. Back in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, you know, why was Jesus even going through Samaria. If we go back to that text, it says Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, right? Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So, you know, as John said, he, you know, I, I must, how was it? <laughs> he must increase, I must decrease, right? That's what's going on. Jesus, his, his work is growing. And John the Baptist was known for baptizing people. That's why they call him John the Baptist, right? The, the baptizer, the immerser, how do we call him that? Uh, he was warning people to re- repent, for the kingdom was at hand. And Jesus' disciples were baptizing even more people than John was. And so they're kind of getting out of that area to relieve some pressure and to move on to Galilee up north, but they go into Samaria, presumably here to baptize these people, as they've been baptizing people down in in Judea, as they came to believe on. And that's not really mentioned here in chapter 4 other than these verses here. Uh, But, of course, now we have a, a better baptism at this point in salvation history Romans 6, 3 through 4, and I know you've been studying through Romans. These verses say, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were, buried, uh, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's through Jesus' death that we have life, because his death also had a resurrection to it, right? So when we are buried with him in baptism, we come out of the out of the baptistry to walk in a new life, in a new way, and we're also having uh, that hope of our uh, resurrection when he returns as well. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit seems to be what the new birth is referring to. And and uh, this living water. It all seems to be wrapped up in, in baptism. And the Holy Spirit. And the new life. All these things. These concepts we have together. And if you have not obeyed the gospel. We encourage you to take the living water. That springs up or wells up or leaps up to eternal life. So if there's anything we can do to help you this evening with regard to your spiritual life, we want to help you. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. Is it who will follow Jesus? So will you follow Jesus? Are you following Jesus? I hope you are. But if, if we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and sing the song.